This is a story about hope, and it is also a story about despair. At the heart of each of us lies a gnawing anxiety. Who am I? Where am I from? Where am I going? What's for dinner? These anxieties plague us day and night, and without any firm foundation to put our feet upon, we are given over to the depths of despair. But with a solid foundation, with something to reinforce ourselves, there is hope. Hope that we might make it to dinner time. This story is really the story of one man. A man who would break the vault of heaven and return with fire to light men, and only men's, souls. This is a story about a man named Peter Jordanson. Hyperjordanization. A mockumentary by Curtis Adams. Part 1. Behold the Jordanson. The story of Jordanson begins in Albert, Edwardian, in June of 1962. A precocious child, Jordanson grew up in Whiteview, a small town in the far west of the Canadian province. He was the eldest of three children born to Wesley and Karen Jordanson. Karen was a librarian at the Whiteview campus of Bigfield Regional College, and Wesley was a schoolteacher. His middle name was Bernie, after his socialist grandfather. When Jordanson was 13, his school librarian introduced him to the writings of George Orwell, Aldous Huxley, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, and Ayn Rand. As Jordanson's mother was a librarian, he was very receptive, and immediately took to heart the book recommendations. After the introduction, Jordanson would impress his teachers, including his father, by taking the worst, most superficial reading from each of the texts. From George Orwell, he gained a great disdain for socialists who derided the working class. From Aldous Huxley, he drew racism. From Alexander Solzhenitsyn, he gained the stuff of nightmares, a deep-seated fear of gulags which would come to haunt him, often in an ironic fashion, for the rest of his life. And from Ayn Rand, he gained objectivism. It is worth noting that his librarian was Gritty Latterly, mother of Monica Latterly, leader of the Edwardian Democratic People's Party and the 17th Premier of Edwardian. Throughout his teenage years, he would go on to work for the Democratic People's Party. Increasingly, however, he grew disenchanted with the party, eventually leaving them at the age of 18. He saw his experience of disillusion resonating with Orwell's diagnosis, as written in Road to Wigan Pier, the intellectual, tweed-wearing, middle-class socialists simply didn't like the poor, they just hated the rich. From this, Jordanson would take the very opposite position. He would like the poor, and he would love the rich. After graduating from the stern scrutiny of his father, 
Jordanson left Whiteview High School in 1979, his own man. He immediately set out to enter Bigfield Regional College to study political science and English literature under the equally stern view of his mother. He later transferred to the University of Edwardian, where he completed his BA in political science in 1982. It would appear that English literature, and writing in general, was not his strong suit. Whether this disappointed his mother, caused a rift in their relationship that was irreparable, forced his transfer, and ultimately left a lasting impression on his psyche, nobody knows. Sublimating whatever anguish had led him to drop English literature from his course, Jordanson turned his attentions to political questions. He was troubled by what he had seen in the Democratic People's Party. It appeared as though the politics of resentment and relentless self-promotion were embedded within the political culture of Canada. At that time, Jordanson had no taste for self-promotion, and he deeply feared that the politics of resentment would give rise to that which he feared most. Gulags. Jordanson took a gap year to visit Europe, where he began studying the psychological origins of the Cold War. As part of this, he particularly focused on 20th century European totalitarianism. The fear of gulags he gained in his childhood continued to haunt him. To seek a deeper understanding of these nightmares, he would turn to the works of Carl Jung, Frederick Nietzsche, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, and Fyodor Dostoevsky. Was it possible that the solution to these nightmares lay not in politics, but in the human heart, in the human mind? Jordanson became convinced this was so. He then returned to the University of Edwardian and received a BA in psychology in 1984. All of this was prelude to what would become the driving force in Jordanson's life. Viewed from a distance, the strange turn that Jordanson's life took was prefigured by his childhood experiences. Trapped in a system where his life played out under the watchful eye of his parents, first at home and then at school, Jordanson was emotionally primed to receive warnings about totalitarian politics. Exposed at a young age to the machinations of the Democratic People's Party, as well as the writings of Orwell, he was well positioned to see their politics as hollow and condescending, stoking the fires of resentment for personal gain. It's easy to see how he drew a straight and cynical line from the failures of his politics to the evil of gulags. And as Huxley had written, a distracted and increasingly degenerate society would be too immersed in individual pleasures to see the danger before it was too late. Clearly, the rot began in the hearts of these socialists. As Ayn Rand had written, theirs was the politics of resentment, covetous of the works of great men like Jordanson hoped to become. He would have to confront this rot and the evils it produced. The Russian novelists he read during his gap year painted a vivid picture of their evils, but without an understanding of the origin of the rot, he was powerless to fight it. To Jordanson, Carl Jung and Frederick Nietzsche had the answer. Jung wrote about the collective unconscious realm of symbols and myths that tied human culture together, 
guiding human action and ultimately human society through archetypal patterns. And Nietzsche wrote about the will to power, the driving force that made rational order of the world, as well as the need for a messianic Ubermensch who would stand against the decadence of a rotten society and create a new foundation for human life. Curiously, the Nazis also really liked these parts of Nietzsche's work. As Jordanson was setting out into the world with a newfound appreciation for the benefits the psychology could bring, he was beginning to construct an identity for himself. He would be a healer of men. In 1985, he moved to Mount Surreal to attend Gilligan University, where he would work on a PhD in clinical psychology for the next six years. It was during this period, in 1986, that Jordanson had a revelation. He heard the voice of truth, revealing to him the grand construct that underlay human civilization and formed a basis for truth and meaning. He was just 24 years old. Jordanson would later write that he felt he had divined a secret truth of the universe, something no one else had ever known before. Jordanson finished his PhD before proceeding, he might have had cause to question whether this incident was perhaps driven by his formative experiences. After all, the onset of schizophrenia typically begins in the early 20s for men, and is usually accompanied by what is clinically termed a psychotic break. But the truth would not wait. Jordanson began the 13-year undertaking that would come to define his life. He would write a book about the truth, a book weaving together his understanding of psychology, mythology, anthropology, epistemology, neurology, ornithology, theology, and political economy. He would create a map from which men would derive meaning for their lives. Jordanson would name this book Plots of Purpose, The Engineering of Credence. It would be published in 1999. Reviews for Plots of Purpose came pouring in. Conceptually troubling, unduly repetitive, exasperating in its format, critics found it murky and ineffective as a work of anthropology, psychology, philosophy, and politics. Current Affairs lauded it as an elaborate, unprovable, unfalsifiable, unintelligible theory. Jordanson was delighted. Had his work been embraced by the very decadent culture he took aim at, he would have been deeply concerned. As it was, their condemnation meant nothing to him, as he had seen what earned their praise. Content that he had succeeded, Jordanson sat back and waited for the world to wake up and recognise his triumph. That triumph would be long delayed, but as he waited for it to inevitably arrive, Jordanson would have other passions in his life. While still undertaking his PhD, 
Jordanson had met the love of his life, Bobby Tamerlane, and in 1989 they married. This would later allow Jordanson to make references to his wife when speaking on the subject of gender roles, which has since made a lot of women very angry and has been widely regarded as a bad move by Bobby. Their future anger, white hot and incandescent, would ultimately transcend time, sowing the seeds of karmic retribution within the womb of Bobby, one depressing matrimonial obligation at a time. Eventually, the seeds bore fruit. Fittingly, the Jordansons would name their daughter Eris. Part 2 Jordanson and the Dragon To understand Jordanson's decisions, it is important to understand the theory behind his work. Plots of Purpose was to serve as a map by which man could navigate the perils of living in the world. It began as follows. A spectre is haunting Europe, the spectre of communism. All the powers of old Europe have entered into a holy alliance to exercise this power. Pope and Tsar, Metternich and Guizot, French radicals, and German police spies. Where is the party in opposition that has not been decried as communistic by its opponents in power? Where is the opposition that has not hurled back the branding reproach of communism against the more advanced opposition parties, as well as against its reactionary adversaries? Two things result from this fact. Communism is already acknowledged by all European powers to be itself a power. It is high time that communists should openly, in the face of the whole world, publish their views, their aims, their tendencies, and meet this nursery tale of a spectre of communism with a manifesto of the party itself. To this end, communists of various nationalities have... Wait a moment. This isn't right. Sorry, the map was upside down. Jordanson wrote, Something we will not see protects us from something we can never understand. The thing we will not see is culture, in its intrapsychic or internal manifestation. The thing we can never understand is the chaos that gave rise to culture. If the structure of culture is disrupted, unwittingly, chaos returns. We must do anything, anything, to defend ourselves against that return. As well as being incredibly revealing about the individual psychology of Jordanson, this introduction sets the stage for the theory that will follow. His theory had its origin in the simplest of all human emotions, fear. Jordanson feared the rise of chaos that would disrupt the foundation on which he had based his world, and his theory was a reaction to this threat, a fortress in which men might secure themselves against the dangerous, unpredictable, and ultimately destructive forces of the unknown. The central pillar of his theory drew on the works of a psychologist Carl Jung and the anthropologist Joseph Campbell, but its roots went far further back, to the work of a philosopher, René Descartes. Descartes was a philosopher during the Enlightenment period, a turbulent period where the old cultural order of divine right of kings was being contested by new, innovative ideas, principles of science and materialism. 
Descartes wished to set this new order on a strong, indisputable foundation, and so he laid the cornerstone on the one thing he knew he could trust. Descartes wrote, I think, therefore I am. What he meant by this was that he, the person doing the thinking, could be sure he existed, because if he did not exist, then he could not be thinking. Unfortunately, Descartes then ran into immediate problems, finding it impossible to trust the information being provided to him by his senses. Ultimately, unable to answer the question, he threw up his hands and made God sort it out, and the foundation for modern rational thought was laid. It is important to note that Descartes could have written, I feel, therefore I am. By choosing to preference the intellectual, rational process of thought as the basis for all being and knowledge for mankind, Descartes excluded all that was emotional as being irrational and untrustworthy, the basis of all foolishness. It followed that the ruling patriarchy of the time would take to this warmly, as provided a basis for rational, intellectual men to denigrate and exclude the perspective of irrational, emotional women. Returning to Jordanson, this central conceit of reason over emotion, of masculine over feminine, served as the basis for his work. He divided the world into three different domains. The known, which represented all of a known world, all of culture, order itself. The unknown, which represented all of the unknown world, threats, chaos itself. And the knower, the individual who must protect their known world by confronting the unknown. From Joseph Campbell, he borrowed a concept that Campbell had written extensively about, the hero's journey. Campbell had undertaken an elaborate study of every human myth, and within these myths he spotted a common pattern, that of a hero figure who journeys beyond the realm of the known into darkness and returns with a prize with which he wins a victory. The genius of Campbell was that he realised these stories were really playing out a psychodrama, by which individuals would learn to step outside the comfort of their familiar culture and way of life and enter into the unknown, gaining insights that they could then return and integrate into their lives, into themselves. Clearly, Jordanson decided, the Noah was this hero, and the central process of maintaining society lay in this hero's journey. What then were the known and the unknown, the order of society and the chaos of all that threatens it? Jordanson examined the myths that Campbell quoted from, and to them he applied a theory developed by the psychologist Carl Jung. As a student of Sigmund Freud, who had rejected his interpretation of the world, Carl Jung asserted that the human mind was divided into three parts. The conscious ego, the personal unconscious, and the collective unconscious. He said that the personal unconscious contained all the signs and symbols to which the individual attached meanings, and that these emerged in dreams as reflections of their unconscious thought processes. But far more interesting to Jordanson was his conception of the collective unconscious. Jung wrote that every human had a portion of our unconscious mind filled with signs and symbols that were common to all humans, inherited from culture. Thus it was possible to identify common symbols, signs to which common meanings were attached, and that these archetypes performed specific roles within the unconscious mind. More than this, Jung proposed that this was the basis of all religion, all mythology, and that these archetypes were the patterns by which people navigated the challenges proposed by life. It made sense to Jordanson that the known and the unknown were archetypes, diametrically opposed, and that to live in the world was the process of navigating and negotiating between them. 
it should come as little surprise that he decided the known, the rational, safe world was the father, and the unknown, rational, destructive world was the mother. The father was the king of order, the hero was Saint George sent out to slay the dragon to maintain that order, and the mother? The mother, and all women, had within them the dragon of chaos, the potential for all destruction and evil. Jordanson would later remark that he did not understand why so few women were attracted to his work. The rest of his work follows from this central conceit. Engaging with the unknown is a psychosexual endeavour, wherein the opposite sex have within them the potential to destroy the man who approaches them unwarily. Authority is to be respected, as it holds back the darkness, and it is naturally appropriate that naturally rational men should be advantaged over irrational women. Feminism, communism, and any other ideologies that sought equality ran counter to this reality, upset the natural order of the world, and risked destroying all that was good in a chaos of gulags. Much like Jordanson had impressed his teachers with his superficial and incorrect study, Jordanson's application of Carl Jung and Joseph Campbell were based on fundamental misreadings of their work. Carl Jung had begun as a student of the great psychologist Sigmund Freud. In Freud's world, the mind could be divided into three parts. The id, which represented unconscious and instinctual desires, primarily sexual. The superego, which represented the critical, moralizing authority of the mind. The ego, the organized conscious individual who mediated between the two, pined to pleasure and sex. Jung disagreed. He proposed that we each have a persona, which is the social construct of how we present ourselves to the world, the mask we wear that hides our true nature. A shadow, which contains all we repress and deny, our weaknesses, desires, instincts, and shortcomings. The self, which represents the unified unconsciousness and consciousness of the individual, who we are as we experience and reconcile our dreams. And most importantly, an anima or animus. Jung thought women had an animus, which was the masculine portion of their primarily feminine psyche, whereas men had an anima, which was the feminine portion of their primarily masculine psyche. To Jung, the anima or animus was not a threat, but represented the true self, everything about us that was excluded by our assumed gender role, and so it served as the gateway to the collective unconscious and its realm of deeper understanding. To these four archetypes he added a host of other, lesser archetypes, including a father authority figure who was stern and powerful, and another archetype who was nurturing and comforting. He did, however, countenance that in some individuals these lesser archetypes could find different forms of expression, and that they could overlap, combine, and be replaced in specific individuals. Jordanson had got this completely wrong. By reading the archetypes of mother and father as universal, and by failing to admit the true role of the anima or animus, Jordanson had completely missed the point of Jung's theory. In doing so, he built his work not on Jung, but on the Freudian world that Jung had sought to reject. To say he missed the point would be an understatement. 
but his mistakes did not end there, for he was equally mistaken about Campbell's work. Campbell had written extensively about the mythologies he studied, and part of the recurring pattern he observed was the relationship between masculine and feminine in myth. Jordanson read these stories, including many stories where the feminine is overpowered by the masculine, and from these he recognised that this was the natural order of the world. But Campbell did not agree. Instead, Campbell read these stories as the product of the cultures which made them, and saw that the subjugation of women, of goddesses, was a reaction to a deeper truth. In Campbell's understanding, the feminine divine, which was within all women, was the source of all life, all creation, and fundamentally, every human being who lived. Only women could conceive and give birth, bring forth life from nothing, and so they formed the centre of every human society. Men, then, were raised in the shadow of women, keenly aware that they lacked this power, consumed by the knowledge that their lives were defined by their relationship to women through the creation of family, or their service to the needs of the community. The subjugation of women by men, of goddesses by gods, was a reaction to this natural ordering of the world, driven fundamentally by the anxieties of men. In Campbell's conception, the feminine divine is not inherently chaotic or unknown, but rather psychologically threatening to men who feel, on some level, as though they are incomplete women. The hero's journey was not to conquer the feminine, then, but to engage with it, and recognise its presence within him. Campbell wrote that the task of human beings was to realise your androgyny in a metaphysical sense, and your immortality along with your mortality. Realise that, and you realise that you're okay, and so is the world. He did not believe the myths of the world said women were chaos, but that women had been subjugated from their rightful place. He was clear on this point, writing, I taught at a women's college for nearly four decades, and as I said to my students, all I can tell you about mythology is what men have said and experienced, and now women have to tell us from their point of view what the possibilities of a feminine future are. And it is a future. Jordanson was correct that Jung and Campbell's intuitions were compatible. But in fundamentally misreading them, he created something that was the opposite of their intentions. He was well read, but he was, to use the technical term, a fucking moron. The Dunning-Kruger effect is a form of cognitive bias, whereby people believe they are smarter and more capable than they actually are. In essence, at the lowest end of ability, people lack the skills and perspective necessary to recognise how little they actually understand, and so give inflated estimates of their overall competence. Related to this, Jordanson was convinced that plots of purpose held the secret to a cultural renaissance for all humanity. All that he needed to do was educate enough people in its principles and worldly happiness would follow. But why did it seem that no one was listening? While writing his magnum opus, he had taught and conducted research as a professor at an Ivy League university in the United States, specifically studying aggression arising from drug and alcohol abuse. Perhaps the answer lay there. It was possible that the dysfunctions caused by not following his prescription for life 
was also preventing people from recognizing the truth he was offering. Somehow, he would have to break through to them. The year before Plots of Purpose was published, Jordanson returned to Canada, eventually becoming a full professor at the University of Poutine in Totoro. It was there that he waited for the world to beat a path to his door, his confusion growing, doubts creeping in. To remind himself of what it was he was working to avoid, in 2000 he began collecting Soviet-era paintings, displaying them in his house as a reminder of a relationship between totalitarian propaganda and art, as examples of how idealistic visions can become totalitarian oppression and horror. He could not give up. By 2004, he had realised he needed to make his work more accessible, and to this end, he managed to persuade a Canadian television channel to produce a 13-part TV miniseries, wherein he lectured about his book. By most accounts, it made little impact, failing to be heard above the myriad other distractions on offer. Defeated, Jordanson's work was unlikely to ever again be heard outside his classes. Then the modern internet happened, and the world became much stupider. In 2005, a website launched. Its name was YouTube, and it allowed any idiot with a camera to upload videos of whatever rubbish they wanted to be consumed by children, disaffected teenagers, and nerdy young men. This was perfect for Jordanson, and so he very quickly seized on this opportunity, beginning to upload videos of his lectures in 2013, eight years later. By combining plots of purpose with his psychological lectures, as well as experiences gained from his private practice as a clinical psychologist, Jordanson slowly grew a small following of impressionable weirdos who held his words in high esteem. Yet he couldn't achieve the breakthrough he needed, couldn't reach the wider world. A crucial element was missing, holding him back from popular appeal. By this point, the Jordanson's daughter, Eris, was 21. By her own admission, she took for granted the world she had grown up in, working to support her father as a dutiful child should. As she would later write, I thought living in a house with over 9,000 paintings from the Soviet Union was totally normal. I thought discussions about mythology over dinner was ordinary. I thought negotiations about why it was important to tell the truth were standard. I thought quizzing my boyfriends about why they thought they could date me was maybe a little strange. Jordanson had turned to Eris to understand how to upload his videos to YouTube. Faced with a lack of further progress, in 2016 he would once again seek out her help. And although he did not know it, in doing so he began to reap the karmic vengeance he was due. Meanwhile, back in America, the poet John Schreffler wrote a poem. He called it Neighbourhood Girl. She's new to the neighbourhood, her family just moved in, from Greece or somewhere. She's a great, tall, gawky girl with braces and earrings and uneven skin. Hormones and acne. Her change is coming in. And today, she's playing hooky. January 4. Orange lights on the school zone sign beat out at her too and caution the homeland's socked-in morning rush with her strobe-light samba. Condition amber, as she sits invisible, swinging her legs to the beat. Perched up high on aluminum over the uncanny day glow, or the key line fluorescence, 
that says school at the top of his composition. I see her and she lets me. I'm an old family friend. Sometimes I play poker with her aunt Arato. Her name is Nemesis and she's just moved in. She's new to the neighborhood. She's checking it out. Part 3. Those whom the gods would destroy, they first call Daddy. Eris Jordanson only knew how to give her father what he had taught her. When Peter Jordanson asked her for help in breaking through the wall of indifference, she counselled him as he had counselled her before. But it was important to be honest about what one truly meant, and to stand against the cultural decadence that grew from chaos. To this end, she suggested he upload a different kind of video, one that stated the truth as he saw it, something that would be outrageous to the wider world and through which he could gain notoriety. With that notoriety, more attention would be drawn to his work, and surely more people would be exposed to its truth. Eris proposed that Jordanson engage in self-promotion, behaviour that had previously made him extremely uncomfortable. But facing the failure of obscurity, Jordanson decided to let a little bit of chaos into his life, to balance it out, he would indeed speak truth to power. And to this end, he recorded a three-part lecture on something that deeply troubled him. In 2016, the Canadian government proposed to amend the Canadian Human Rights Act and the Criminal Code. The bill that would do this, Bill C-69, proposed to add gender identity or expression as a prohibited ground of discrimination under the Canadian Human Rights Act. That it similarly proposed to expand the definitions of promoting genocide and publicly inciting hatred in the hate speech laws, that didn't matter. Johnson objected strongly to what he saw as the ultimate decadence, that men could become women and women could become men. Under his construction, allowing this transition would unmake the law of order that governed the world and the ensuing chaos would give rise to politics that could only end in pain and suffering. In the lectures, Johnson announced his objection to Bill C-69 and stated that he would not use preferred gender pronouns of students and faculty. He made clear that to request such of him would be to compel him to speak and think a certain way, a totalitarian act that all good men must resist on the grounds of freedom. The lectures succeeded in drawing controversy, first from students studying at the University of Poutine, and then more widely from feminist social critics. But they were not the only people to pay attention, nor were they the most significant. Thousands of miles away, a group of men sat in a dark room and watched Jordanson's lectures. The man presenting them was much younger, and periodically he would pause a video to explain again what a YouTube was. When the videos were finished, the presentation continued, turning to the book that Jordanson had offered and the views he expressed in his many videos on the subject. The men in the room were not stupid, nor were they gullible, and so they were not impressed by Jordanson's work. Yet as they learned more about him, 
they began to recognise that his work ultimately served their interests. Johnson was perfectly placed to escalate the culture war that they had been engaged in for years, aiding in the distraction of ordinary people from real, meaningful politics that would affect their lives. In essence, they saw Johnson as a well-intentioned, useful idiot. One by one, the men gave their consent. Over the weeks that followed, their non-taxable foundations would go to work promoting Jordison's videos, the controversy he had sought, and ultimately, plots of purpose. At their behest, news organisations began to broadcast his story and even interview him, building his personal struggle into an illustration of a culture war between libertarian, freedom-loving peoples and the totalitarian evil of the nanny state. Jordanson was oblivious to all of this. All that mattered to him was that he had gotten the opportunity he wanted, and he seized it with both hands. In 2017, he met with Bertie Maxwell, candidate for leader of the Reactionary Party of Canada, and convinced him to shift his position on Bill C-69 from support to opposition. Senators opposed to the bill began to cite Jordanson's analysis of it, his prominence in the debate growing to the point that he was called upon as a witness to speak about the bill before a Canadian Senate committee. Ultimately, the bill was successfully passed, but the damage to society had already been done. Hundreds of thousands of economically excluded, socially disaffected, angry, involuntarily celibate young men had been exposed to Jordanson's teachings. Under Eris's encouragement, Jordanson began tailoring his videos to meet their psychological need for a father figure who would help them make sense of their failing lives. He became the father they never had. In doing so, he became a conservative cultural icon, rising to prominence as an intellectual heavyweight of the reactionary social movement. In due course, he was offered another book deal, and at the start of 2019, Johnson published his 12-step program for life. This book was different from Plots of Purpose, taking the same material but wrapping it in the popular psychology stylings of so many self-help books, taking aim at the young men who formed as increasingly militant supporters. His 12 steps appeared simple. Step 1. Mind your posture. Step two, help yourself out. Step three, make friends with helpful people. Step four, ignore the achievements of others and focus on your own. Step five, have children and don't let them be anything you don't like. Step six, become perfect before you criticize anything. Step seven, do what matters, not what is easy. Step eight, be humble. Step nine, mean what you say Step 10, say what you mean. Step 11, let children play, but only in the approved manner as determined in step five. Step 12, enjoy the little things in life. Driven by the engine Jordanson had become lashed to, the book achieved immediate commercial success. Jordanson promptly took a hiatus from his teaching duties at the University of Poutine, told his clinical patients they were on their own, and set off on a world tour. At last, he had the success he wanted, and nothing could stand in the way of his vision. Part 4. The Electra Complication Eris Jordanson only knew how to give her father what he had taught her. 
but Jordanson had taught his daughter more than he intended. He had not just taught her to be dutiful in her support for him, he had also taught her the secret truth of the universe. In the art that lined the walls of her childhood home she read its message, a message that became clarified by discussions around the dinner table when we would talk about mythology and its relevance to her life. From her father, Eris learned that she had within her the feminine force of pure chaos. Her nature was to threaten the order of the world, to contain the potential for its unmaking. And so it should be no surprise that, as she grew into an independent adult, Eris would more and more come to embody the very forces of creation and destruction that Jordanson feared. His own daughter would be the answer to his stagnation, but at the same time, she would prove to be the unmaking of all he had accomplished just as his theory predicted. In early 2016, before Jordanson would ask for her guidance, Eris met a Ukrainian immigrant named Sergei Klajnikov. Reflecting back on their first meetings, Eris would later write, When we met, we argued about Lenin all night. I thought he'd been brainwashed. He disagreed and accused me of the same. He told me he had to immigrate after the wall fell and his family had to start again in Canada. He told me he'd been shot at as a kid, that he'd learned to defend himself. He had black belts. He practiced with swords. He scared me. He told me he had a demon in him named Boris. It wasn't a joke. He wasn't like anyone I'd ever met, and I didn't know what to think of him. Eris became pregnant eight months after they started dating. In completely and utterly unrelated news, Around the same time, Johnson experienced a severe autoimmune reaction to food. To assist in his recovery, he was prescribed diazepam, a drug in the benzos class of medicines, a psychoactive tranquilizer that is better known by its brand name, Valium. This off-label usage of Valium in treating allergic reactions was very unconventional, as Valium is more commonly used to treat muscle spasms, seizures, restless leg syndrome, trouble sleeping, and in particular, anxiety. Though recovered from the autoimmune reaction, Johnson soon entered a deep and persistent phase of depression. As a trained clinical psychologist, Johnson knew the standard treatments for depression and recognised that Valium alone would not be sufficient to help him. It is for this reason that he turned once again to Eris for advice. She counselled an unusual and radical step, that he transitioned to a strict diet consisting of meat and vegetables only. Drawing on his extensive experience as a clinician and his stellar record when it came to judging ideas, Jordanson immediately took to her prescription. He also kept taking the Valium. Later, in 2018, he would transition to an entirely meat-based diet, dropping the vegetables. Before then, in 2017, Eris married Sergei, and their child was born. Though their relationship was initially rocky, leading to a trial separation, they would fortunately reconcile. Eris would later comment that the majority of issues which had made their relationship difficult and ultimately drove them apart were her own, to do with her deep-rooted preconceptions about how men and women related to each other. Sigmund Freud had a theory about fathers and daughters. It was his belief that, during female psychosexual development, 
a young girl is initially attached to her mother. When she discovers that she does not have a penis, however, she becomes attached to her father and begins to resent her mother, whom she blames for her metaphorical castration. As a result, Freud believed that the girl then begins to emulate her mother out of fear of losing her love. It was his contention that this stage was crucial, as unless the complex is resolved, girls will never identify with their same-sex parent, and remain trapped in a relationship of sublimated sexual desire with their fathers. This theory was initially unnamed, until Carl Jung named this theory the Electra Complex. Sigmund Freud had based it on another theory, the Oedipus Complex, wherein Freud believed boys feared and resented their fathers while fixating on their mothers. In Freud's defence, it should be noted that Freud's mother was, in fact, smoking hot. Meanwhile, as Jordanson's newfound career was in its ascendancy, all was not well. Jordanson's wife Bobby was diagnosed with a rare form of cancer not long after he published his 12-step program for life, and to make matters worse, his rise to fame had attracted the attention of a dangerous critic. In 1985, at the height of its power, the Soviet Union undertook a series of radical experiments in what was then Soviet Yugoslavia. Based on work pioneered by the geneticist Dmitry Belayev, a team of Soviet scientists began working on a daring project to breed an innate understanding of communism into the North American raccoon. The intention was to release these raccoon commissars into North America, where their revolutionary action would soon lead to the destruction of American capitalism. Although the project showed promise, the decline of the Soviet Union would soon halt their efforts entirely, and by the time of the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1991, it would be almost entirely forgotten. But not entirely. Beginning in the late 1980s, the first successfully engineered raccoon began lecturing and speaking on Marxist philosophy to a bemused and frightened world. After the end of the Soviet Union, this raccoon would go on to become something of a philosophical rock star, adopting the moniker Slavoj Gigi to boost his book sales. It was this raccoon that turned his attention to Jordanson in 2019, challenging him to debate the relative merits of capitalism versus Marxism when it came to furthering human happiness. Eris advised Jordanson to accept the invitation, fearing that if he did not rise to occasion, he would be deemed a bitch-made cuck by his devoted followers. Fortunately, throughout this time of trials, Jordanson had a deep well of support to draw upon. Not only did he have the support of his loving daughter Eris, he had his experience as a clinical psychologist, the faith of his followers, and ultimately the whole of human truth in the form of his foundational text, Plots of Purpose. With all of these things at his disposal, he knew just what to do to cope with his rising anxiety. Stoically, he upped his dosage of Valium. It was time to slay the raccoon of chaos. To say that the televised debate did not go according to plan would be something of an understatement. As it turned out, despite being deeply opposed to communism on profound ideological grounds, Jordanson had not even read the Communist Manifesto until the night before. In keeping with his track record when it came to reading comprehension, he misunderstood what it was he read. 
Over the course of three hours, an increasingly nervous Jordanson was toyed with by the communist raccoon, who appeared relaxed, jovial, and more familiar with Jordanson's work than he was. It was an unmitigated disaster. Immediately, as Eris had expected, his followers decided Jordanson was a bitch-made cuck, and his reputation as a conservative intellectual heavyweight was dealt a mortal blow. Jordanson was forced to retreat from public life, and in the months that followed he grappled with increasing insomnia and anxiety, until in late 2019 he attempted to quit taking his heroic doses of Valium. Eris would later write that his withdrawal symptoms were horrific. She said that he experienced incredible, unending, uncontrollable restlessness, verging on panic. And for reasons that were not entirely clear, his experience as a clinician and as the purveyor of universal truth did not prepare him for the severity of Benzo's withdrawal. Fortunately, Eris knew just what to do. At the beginning of 2020, Jordanson, Eris, and her reconciled husband flew to the one place on Earth that Jordanson needed to be to feel well. They went to the former Soviet Republic of Oztozka. To understand what was unfolding in Jordanson's life, one had to recognise that Eris was not merely his daughter, and that by this point, she was no mere mortal woman. The Dragon of Chaos, long coiled within her, had awoken from its dormancy when it felt the presence of a Soviet demon, Boris, and under its influence Eris had woken up to the Electra complex that dominated her earlier life, and became filled with an unspeakable, unthinkable rage. This rage boiled up from her collective unconscious, where it was fed endlessly by the anger of every woman who had been subject to long, rambling explanations of Jordanson's theories by soon-to-be ex-boyfriends. Their anger transcended space, transcended time, and it had been responsible for her very conception. Eris Jordanson only knew how to give her father what he had taught her, and what he had taught her was the full, untempered power of feminine chaos. It was inevitable, then, that Jordanson, seduced by her feminine power, would come completely under her spell. As he declined, she would rise, growing in public presence as he withered, drawing power from a dismantling of the order he represented as her father. Her online brand as an advocate for meat-only dieting grew in prominence as Jordanson became more and more unwell, and by the time they flew to Ars Tosca, a tremendous transformation had taken place. As the squarest man alive, when Eris guided Jordanson to subvert his principles and engage in self-promotion, she introduced him to a world of chaos, made him into a version of himself that existed in more dimensions than his two-dimensional brain could fully comprehend. Both mind and body began to fail under the strain, and by the time the doctors placed him into a medically-induced coma, he had contracted pneumonia in his lungs. He no longer breathed free air. Jordanson would spend four weeks in intensive care, when he emerged in June of 2020, his public appearances were now filtered through Eris's social media presence. He had become entirely consumed by that which he had long feared, a totalitarian existence, where he could not even make his own decisions about his body. But worse than this, so complete was the transformation that he did not even comprehend its peril, expressing optimism about his prospects for recovery. Jordanson loved Big Brother. In August of 2020, 
Eris announced that Jordanson had contracted COVID-19 during his hospital stay. But there were no other incidents of coronavirus during Jordanson's hospitalisation. Commentators on Eris's social media noted that she'd been partying in nightclubs throughout, making it likely that she was the asymptomatic chaos vector that had infected him. It was very likely that Eris's partying would kill her father. Whether or not he would recover, his life as he knew it was over. This story about Peter Jordanson is not true. But what it tells us about men like Peter Jordanson is true. The world is full of men who fear what they do not understand, men who do not comprehend themselves, let alone the women around whom their lives unconsciously revolve. So long as they remain ignorant of perspectives beyond their own, they can never hope to experience a world that is anything less than terrifying. And in trying to control that terror, they become the architects of their own imprisonment. Eris made Jordanson into more than he was, took him into realms of experience that he was not psychologically equipped to handle. Much like a square becomes a cube when extended into the third dimension, and a cube becomes a hypercube when extended into the fourth, Eris subjected her father to a process he could not escape from, because he was its author. He had become trapped in a prison of his own creation. He had become seduced by the Dragon of Chaos. He had become lost in hyper-Jordanization. <laughs>